Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the podcast. If you haven't already joined us over on Facebook, then you should do that right now. Just go onto Facebook, search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. That's where we talk about the podcast, we answer your questions, and yeah, we just kind of get into it a little bit deeper there. Um, so it's a great place to talk to other fans of the podcast. I also need to mention that we are sponsored by Butternut Box now. And I know when I announced that, a lot of you were really glad and happy because you already feed Butternut Box and you've had a great experience, or you're an, an ambassador and you're loving the company. But for people that don't know, Butternut Box make home-cooked meals using the freshest ingredients, it's perfectly portioned, it's delivered to your door, and yeah, it seems like a great pet food subscription service, so you don't have to remember to uh, order dog food every time. And also, it's one of the few foods that have a five-star rating on All About Dog Food, which is an independent review site, which is kind of greatly respected by most people with... A great site and to have a five star rating is really impressive i'm looking forward to it i'm i'm getting my first delivery tomorrow i've only heard great things so i'm i'm uh i'm excited for that and also it's supposed to be very good for dogs that are picky eaters and our little pablo is very picky he doesn't even particularly like raw food which most dogs go mental for so i'm hoping he's gonna love this and i just just from Speaking to some of you and hearing uh, the great things that you've had to say, I think that this is going to be the one that cracks that for him. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about being sponsored by Butternut Box. And you can get a 75% discount on your first box, so you can give it a go and, and try it out and decide if it's for you by going to the URL, just searching um, for butternutbox.com slash nickbenger. That will give you the 75% discount code. So today I'm talking to David Ryan. David is a former chairman of the uh, Association of Pet Behaviour Counselors. He was also a police dog handler for 26 years. He's wrote a whole host of books. He gives talks uh, all over the place. And today we're going to talk about his newest book, Dominant Dogs Handling myths and training insights and David's been on the podcast before and actually I was a little bit nervous about doing a podcast with someone twice um, but I think that's completely unfounded because I asked some of you and uh, in fact without me even prompting it some of you were saying that David Ryan was your favorite podcast so I think I have nothing to worry about here especially because I think David is a great person to talk to and we're covering a whole new issue here with the dominant dog stuff. So I think you're going to really enjoy it. So without further rambling, let's get into it. It's been two years since we last spoke. Um, has it? It doesn't seem like it. Yeah, I think it was 2016. 
Yeah, yeah, well, you'll be right. Yeah, because I, yeah. I looked at our first episode and uh, that we did together, and uh, that was back in 2016. And then, obviously, since then, you've you've published this book on dominance, which I think will be right. great to get yeah. into. Okay, okay. So what, um, what motivated you to, to write on dominance? Because I think this is a topic that, you know, from in inside the dog training community, it's like been done to death, right? Like we we've had so many of these debates, but yeah. I guess there still is a lot of uh, misconception as as dog owners. Uh, well, that's kind of what prompted it, really, or what prompted the book. Um, I was asked to do a talk at the BVNA, the British Veterinary Nurse Association, on uh, on exactly that on dominance. Uh, and so I, I did. I did my little um, hour and a half, two hour presentation, uh, which was very well received. But afterwards, the talking to the to the nurses, the the delegates, um, there was a huge amount of misunderstanding around it. Uh, and I thought, well, goodness me, if they don't know, I mean, and, and, and a lot of I know a lot of vet nurses are um, into their dog training, into the into their dog behaviour. But equally, there seemed to be an awful lot that didn't know a great deal about it. Um, and they were um, talking as though dominance was uh, a, a real-life thing that they will be talking about to their clients. Um, so I thought, well, if they don't know, then there's obviously still um, a, a section of society out there that's still using it, um, unfortunately. Yeah, it's really hard to kind of get in this. I mean, it's really easy to get in this bubble when we're involved with dog training, where we just kind of assume that everyone knows. But actually, when you're out there and you're talking to people, a lot of people still think that dominance is extremely relevant in how they train their dogs. Absolutely. The the dog training bubble thing is, is I, I mean, I find myself in that constantly. In fact, I'm, I'm at the stage where I think, why am I doing this anymore? There's no need. Everybody knows everything there is to know about dogs, mostly because on the on well, obviously my Facebook feed and and anything that Google shows me is all about people who know about dogs. Um, and you kind of forget that the, there are a, there's a big lump of society that that isn't isn't within that bubble that doesn't actually have that knowledge uh, and who are still dealing with their pets in the in the best way that they can, but possibly without the best information. Yeah, I was talking to uh, my friend Eric the other day and we were talking about um, some of the podcasts that we listened to and he was saying he was getting frustrated that the same basic information was being relayed. And I said, you know, yeah. it's, it's basic to us because we're deep in this. Yeah. But to some people, it's, yeah. it's revolutionary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's an odd position to be in where we're we kind of assume that everyone else knows what we know. Uh, and that's not the case, because as you say, we're, we're almost submerged in it constantly. Um, and, it, and I certainly have the feeling that there's not much else to know. Um, and it's, it can be difficult, uh, as, as your friend Eric was clearly thinking, to pick out the right podcasts where you're going to learn something new and it's not the same old thing that's regurgitated. Yeah, I remember that you mentioned that in the, the last time we spoke. Um, but one one thing, well, maybe it would help if I kind of shared my experiences because I think some people are going to resonate with this. When I was starting out training, I initially came at it as a huge Caesar Milan fan. So I was like, you know, dominance is everything. 
And then, sure. then I was convinced to read Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor. I read that, yeah. and then I was like, my mind was blown. And I was kind of like, well, okay, there's all of this learning theory that makes total sense. But now I was in kind of a weird position where I, I know that there's this learning theory out there, but what about this dominance thing that I've kind of heard and read yeah. so much about? Is this still relevant? And then it took me... a, a another you know amount of time before i realized that actually no dominant isn't dominance isn't really relevant in how we train dogs i don't know if that's a similar kind of realization for you we we all have this trajectory where where we start off learning a little bit and then we add to it and add to it don't we um yeah i mean i go back a long way (laughs) Uh, i go back to reading books by the monks of new skeet um, which which you probably don't even know. No, I, I know um, of, back, I know of the monks. You, you know the I yeah, read you know them, the monks. But I know yeah. of them. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, that was kind of that was revolutionary dog training gospel way back in the eighties, um, and that was that was all dominance and that was all the dog knowing its place and pushing it down and rolling it over and um, and when I was a, a young police dog handler, that was the perceived wisdom. That was that was new. That was the way to treat dogs. Um, and it was fairly revolutionary, and we we had people like uh, Barbara Woodhouse, who was who clearly meant well, and um, and highlighted um, the the arts of dog training on television, um, and she was uh, quite forceful and and uh, uh, a forceful personality lady, um, and that was perceived to be the way to treat dogs uh, way back then, um, and so. It was uh, it was Serple's um, uh, domestic dog that did it for me. Uh-oh. You know, you were saying about Karen Pryor and, and Don't Shoot the Dog. It was it was when I when I read that, as you say, there's, I think we all have our our initial books that that blow our mind, and that's what did it yeah, for that's me. James Serple, right? Um, yeah, yeah, James Serple. Yeah. yeah, I was trying to remember the first name there. I'll make sure that we link that in the, yeah, yeah. In the notes. Um, yeah, you it's made a really—you yeah. made a really interesting yeah, point there. That you know, these people that that might treat dogs in ways that we consider to be barbaric now have always come at it with good intentions. I think sometimes people see these people on television and think they're just like the evilest people in the world. And actually, okay, they they might not be doing it in the way that we agree with, but they they are trying to do the right thing, even if they're doing a lot of wrong in the in the process yeah absolutely um i mean I, I don't think anybody gets into dog training because they don't like dogs um i think everybody's doing it from with with the best intentions at heart um and it just it's sometimes we're lacking in education as i was you know i mean we all of us have to learn um and it's by spreading this information that we can teach more and more people better ways of training dogs hopefully all right so let's kind of um address this to the people that are maybe still on the fence maybe they have already come across positive training a little bit but now they're still a little bit confused about all of this information out there on dominance and what what can you say to to educate them on that subject are you sure we're talking to them because i'm i'm now i've now got your friend eric sitting on my shoulder going we know this why are you telling us all this again (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and yeah, you're right. That's not well, this. This, my, I mean, my little. It's not really a book. It's more of a booklet, really. But it's not 
not aimed at it's not aimed at people who already know how to train dogs in a in a, a modern way. It's 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 aimed at the people who are stuck in the old ways, really. All right, okay. Um, well, and this... hopefully, being able to being able to educate them a little bit um, in the right direction. Okay, so how much do you talk about dominance in this book, or is it more of a case of? I mean, is that is it is it a book or a booklet that where you're talking about? Um introducing people to positive training methods or is it more about dispelling this idea of dominance it um starts with me back in the in the early 80s describing myself um using the training methods we used then to deal with a dog uh, a police dog a trained police dog who uh, called major who um was uh, considered to be dominant and it hopefully explains why um, rolling him onto his back and holding him down every, almost every day uh, didn't really work very well. Um, so it kind of explains that I was in that position once and uh, it kind of didn't work for me. And that, that was one of the, the things that kind of started me on the road to learning about dog training because I clearly wasn't doing something right. Um, and yet it was the perceived wisdom of the time. So what happened with this dog, Major? What made you think that he was dominant? Major was a very um, confident personality who um, had uh, he had some learning behind him. He was about two years old when, when, when he was offered to us as a police dog. Uh, and he was allocated to me and I took him. And he was quite aggressive in his nature. Um, he... Uh, he would have been quite a good police dog if I'd handled him better. Uh, he was an average police dog the way I handled him. Um, but, but that was mostly down to me rather than down to him. Um, and he basically uh, was... We set up a competition between ourselves, really, which was, again, my mistake at the time, because I was told that if he growled at me, then I had to hold him down, roll him over, do the alpha roll thing. Um, and he fought back. Uh, and he fought back really, really persistently to the extent that um, it got to the stage where I, I could almost not even look at him without him thinking, he's going to come at me. And I was thinking, he's going to come at me. And so we had this constant misunderstanding that, that each of us was trying to best the other. Um, and rather than handling me more sensitively, it was always a fight and it was always hands-on, or teeth-on in his case. Um I've still got some of the scars from it, really, even after all these years. So what made you realise um, that this kind of dominance approach wasn't working well with Major? Well, it clearly wasn't working uh, because every time I alpha rolled him, uh, he would submit, he would give in eventually. I mean, I had to hold him down for quite a long while sometimes, and he fought back really quite strongly. Um, as I say, I've, I've still got some of the scars. He bloodied my hands quite a few times. Um uh, but it only lasted until next time. It never, it never solved anything. Um, it never solved anything. Certainly for more than a week. Um, a week wouldn't go by without without him coming at me for some reason, um, even if it was some perceived slight. Uh, I remember we were out late at night and um, at work, uh, and I asked him to jump a jump a hedge. It was only a low hedge. It was only a couple of feet tall. Um, and he jumped it, and he and he landed on an electric cattle fence on the other side. Um, and he obviously thought that the pain from the cattle fence had come from me, 
and I thought he was going to kill me because he came back straight in my throat. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> so, so anything, anything, anything that ever happened bad to Major Major considered it was my fault because I must have arranged it because I arranged most of the bad things that happened in his life. So was there um, a realization there that okay, now I've got to try and figure this out because what I've been taught isn't working. Yeah, sure. I mean. I didn't exactly write me. Major had lasted for about four years as a police dog, and he got to the stage where, probably through not very enlightened handling methods, um, he reached the stage of not being controllable. Um, we have a, or we had an exercise called the standoff, where um, if someone gives up, the dog's not supposed to bite them. They're supposed to circle and bark and contain them by by surveillance rather than by actually taking them down. Um, and Major just refused to do it. He just liked biting people. Um, which was part of his nature as well. Um, but so he failed his licensing and he kept failing it and we, we couldn't fix it. Um, so eventually we um, gave him to the army to use as an attack dog. So he only had one function. Um, so we, he kind of changed ownership again and, uh, and joined the armed forces to, to become a, an attack dog where he didn't need to do a standoff. And it was, it was the dogs after that where I kind of got the opportunity to start afresh, where... I realised that um, reward-based things are just uh, just so much more important to a dog than telling it not to do things. Um, and once you get into the uh, reward-based kind of frame of mind, then dominance doesn't even come into it. You know, there's there's no there's no trying to dominate your dog. What you're trying to do is arrange things so that your dog wants to do what you want them to do. Um, and that was a, that was a kind of light bulb moment for me, really. That we we I uh, started using a, a, a toy as a reward uh, for a dog that was called Shogun, actually, which was the one that I, I started working after Major, uh, and he, he was tremendous. He was he was brilliant. Um, but there was never any competition between us because all I had to do was arrange for him to want to do what I wanted to do. Um, and it was only later after that that we, that we started getting into dominance theory. I mean, that was that was hands-on practical dog training. It's only when you start to look at the theory of it that you realise that, that dominance as a, as a construct isn't really very helpful. So obviously you're quite a, a big advocate now for reward-based training. Um, it's funny, this is kind of a hot topic among our group right now because I literally, uh, today I released a podcast with Robert Hewings who used to work in the Metropolitan Police training police dogs. So at the moment everyone's talking about it and, you know, I had a message today asking about, um, from someone that, that isn't British kind of saying, where can I find out more information about training police and military and working dogs in a reward based way? Because it seems like in so many other countries they're still doing it in that in, in not a reward-based way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I had a conversation with Victoria Stillwell about the same thing. She works with uh, American police departments, trying to uh, trying to show them ways of training their dogs. But the, from from what I've heard, I've got a, a colleague in Canada as well um, who's in the police over there, and he um, he tells me that their police dogs are very much. Um, um, punitively trained. They're trained. They're trained not to do things as opposed to to want to do the right things. It were. So, so yeah. Um, I guess. I mean, police forces aren't very progressive anyway. Um, and in things like dog training, it'll come from the outside in. It probably won't come from the inside out. Well, it's funny you say that because Robert was saying that 
he feels like within the police they have a um what they tend to do is is learn from each other as opposed to learn from outside sources which might be part of the reason that the progress has been slower yeah yeah could well be yeah um although i have i mean i've I've talked to some even Somerset trainers about uh, about training their dogs, and they were they were clicker training and and doing all the right Guy things Williams, in the right, right. way. So, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Robert Broyloff yeah. as well. <laughs> Going to have to have him on the podcast because people keep talking about him. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there, I mean, there are some good guys. Uh, uh, I mean, good examples of training being done by specific people. Um, but I mean, most. Most police training, uh, regardless of whether it's for dogs or anything else, comes down to the lowest common denominator. You know, it's what we can do in the quickest time and, and get the product out there. Yeah, okay. And so, so sometimes, sometimes experiment isn't encouraged. Yes, yeah. This all It's funny, you, you're saying exactly the same things that Robert was saying, which, you know, must imply, you know, that, that yeah, should sure. tell us something. Um, yeah, where, yeah, yeah. where did this uh, idea of dominance really originate then? Um, it's difficult to say. I, I did try and research it. I researched all over the place, and there are there are little examples of it kind of turning up in dog training, oh, way way back. Um, and the the ethologists really started using it. Um, if you go back to the the, the big ethology uh, boom of the um, early twentieth, late nineteenth century, um, when um, people were rest- investigating hierarchies, pecking orders, and chickens, and things like that. Um, uh, and it was really from the ethologists' um, interpretation of animal behaviour in in groups of animals um, that dominance started to um, um, re- receive prominence. Really, so it wasn't wasn't so much in dog training. It was it was in ethology where it, where it really started. Yeah, the one that um, always gets brought up is I'm probably going to pronounce his name wrong, but um, is it David Meek or Meech? I or Meek. Yeah. It could be Mech. No idea. <laughs> but yeah, that's yeah. the one that always get bro- gets brought. The wolf brought- guy, David, David the wolf guy. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he he um, he knows more about wolves than probably anybody else on the planet. Well, uh, and uh, and he started with um, captive wolves, uh, which is where which is where most wolf studyists uh, started. Um, and of course, captive wolves were. Conglomerations. They weren't. They weren't natural um, collections. They were uh, collections of mostly young males. The, the young males are the ones that leave leave the family and go off looking for for making to start families of their own. And so they're the ones that are most susceptible to being caught. They become a nuisance and then they get trapped and then they and they find a way to a zoo. And so so you end up with I don't know a dozen um, young male wolves all in the same pen. Um, and they obviously fought, because uh, if you put a dozen young males of any species inside a pen and limit the resources for them so that the, the food only arrives once a day and they can't get out of each other's way, um, then they're, they're going to fight uh, in the same way that any species would. And so it's from that that, that, that wolf observers started to get this idea that, that wolves fought for dominance, because they fought all the time. Yeah, I think he even came out later and said that this whole idea was flawed. He basically took it back, but at that point it was did, uh, yeah. it was too late. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, for the dog training um, world, yeah, in, in, Well, in his later work, he said yeah, that, that, that um, 
the, the common um, idea of a wolf pack is um, wolves all vying for dominance held in check by an alpha male and female. Um, and there, there were even suggestions that there were there were uh, uh, female hierarchies and male hierarchies within the within the wolf pack. Um, uh, and he's, he's he's come out later on and said, as you as you rightly say, that it's all nonsense. It's a wolf a wolf pack's actually a family with the with the male uh, the father uh, the the male parent um, taking decisions based on hunting uh, and the female. Uh, parent taking decisions based on uh, pup care, um, and so they, they even share out the responsibilities, um, and that's a much more accurate uh, description, which for which you, you don't even need the concept of dominance. You, you, there's no need to put it in there. So another thing that comes up um, occasionally is okay. Let's let's say that dominance is not a factor in how we train our dogs. Is it? ever a factor are there ever any rare dogs that do display dominance against people okay what we what we what or what i try and get away from is the idea of dominance as a as a character trait or a or a thing dominance is the product of a relationship um uh, properly used as a as a, an ethologist the term dominance is used for when uh, in a in a dyadic relationship in a in a one-to-one relationship then one individual continually uh, gets access to resources at the expense of the other individual so that could only happen if the other individual submits so dominance is never something that's achieved by an individual it's always conferred on that individual by another individual yeah, so, so you can't actually you can't actually gain dominance by having, for example, a dominant personality, because there's no such thing as a dominant personality. And also, I would so you could, I would imagine yeah, that, yeah, I would imagine that dominance is is completely fluid, right? So it's not just this dog is dominant over the other one. It's th- this dog values the bone higher on this day, so he's going to try harder to yeah, yeah, sure. this dog values tennis balls yeah, yeah, more sure. so he's gonna try harder in that situation but everything could change day to day yeah scott and fuller did uh, what they call born in pen tests which was exactly that we put two two pups in a pen with a bone and the one that came out with it they would label dominant um but the problem was it changed on different days <laughs> so one day one pup will be dominant another day uh, a different one would and, and there is that fluidity in it, and it's all down to the um, desire for the resource. It's how much you value the resource and how much you're prepared to compete from it, for it. So you can only be dominant over another individual if they value the resource less than you do. So if they don't want it, then you could be said to be dominant. Right. So this, this kind of hierarchical thinking, it, it gets really confusing because we don't just apply it to dogs. You know, like you mentioned chickens, and people even apply yeah, yeah, sure. people even apply it to people, right? Like people might say that that person is particularly dominant, or like, oh, he's a real alpha male kind of thing. Yeah, sure. The alpha male thing just comes from that convoluted thinking back to wolf packs, really. Um, 
Uh, and there, I mean, it's you, you can label the the breeding parent uh, male wolf an alpha male if you want to, but you also call him dad. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's the it's the it's the, the the wolf has no concept of whether he's an alpha male or not. Um, the the wolf knows that he's dad, and he knows that he's got certain responsibilities, and he and he needs to look after his family, and he'll go about it in a particular way. Now, if we want to call him the alpha male, then that's just a label that we've put on him. We could equally call him Dad Wolf. You know, and it, it works just as well. Uh, he won't change his behaviour because we've called him an alpha male rather than Dad. Am I am I right in thinking that that old way that we view dominance as being v- very linear, which is literally the point? Like, I think that um, it's labelled as linear hierarchy, right? Like, yeah, one sure. animal yeah. is higher than another in the pecking order. That yeah. does apply to some animals. Like, I, I think I've heard it before being applied to chickens and lobsters are two examples that come to mind. Am I right in thinking okay. that? You've you've got me on lobsters, but but certainly chicken uh, chicken enthusiasts say that there is a linear hierarchy with regard to food, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's a linear hierarchy in chickens with regard to say nesting places, um, because it depends on the preference of the individual chicken. The the problem that we that we have with um, hierarchies is that yet again, they're a human construct. The animals the animals themselves exist in relationships with different animals. Now if we can observe animal A dominating animal B over food and animal B dominates animal C, then we can say we've got a linear hierarchy. What animal B knows is that they defer to animal A but they don't defer to animal C. So that's two different relationships they've got and they'll react differently in those situations. But they don't know that they're in a linear hierarchy they don't know that animal D is going to be subservient to them because they're uh, they're dominant over animal C, if you know what I mean. They just have individual relationships with individuals. Animals don't view uh, life as a series of hierarchies. So a lot of this as well, it doesn't. It, a lot of this come back to mating rights as well. And like you see this a lot in birds, where like you see birds that have ridiculous like for example peacocks is a good example where like they will yeah. have the most ridiculous feathers like the biggest feathers or whatever and we would label yeah. that male with the biggest most extravagant feathers to be the dominant male because he can take his pick over the female that he wants to mate with yeah we can call it that all the all the peacock with the slightly smallest feathers knows is that it doesn't get the best leg it doesn't get the best uh, display ground, uh-huh. so it's trying its best, but it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to uh, defer to the other one. It just it's going to try and get the best uh, the best display ground it can and work with what it's got. Um, the reason that the that the uh, the one with the with the bigger better display is because it's probably more genetically fit. That's all, um, and that's what the display is about. It's an honest display of genetic fitness. Um, which you can't lie about the size of your tail, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. So what you're saying is the the smaller peacock isn't looking at the bigger peacock and thinking, I don't want to mess with that guy. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Um, uh, there's yeah, I mean, the, there's lots of different ways of looking at it. Um, the um, um, oh, who was it? I've forgotten the name. 
Um, there was a, um, a again an off-sited uh, study on um, a large uh, herd of uh, cattle in, in, in Sophie Inn, in, in which um, there was a dominant bull who, if the other bulls uh, were there when it came to, to mating time, uh, would move out of his way. And, and the biggest, strongest bull took the mating rights. But what the big, strong bull maybe didn't know, actually, I was going to say didn't know, was that when he was out of sight, then the other bulls would, would mate with the in-season cows as well. So you had, you had sneaky bulls, and you had what we call a dominant bull. So there's different ways of arranging mating so that all the genes get passed into the next generation. Um, because sometimes you need sneaky genes as opposed to dominant genes, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I can just kind of imagine people listening to this kind of thinking, because I remember I was in the situation as well where, okay, like I'm hearing what you're saying, but how do I explain this behavior that I see when I see this this dog is... You know, no, none of the other dogs will mess with this dog when he walks through the park. You know, how do I explain that? What what is happening there? Well, we don't have to invoke dominance. We can we could invoke um, um, an impressive size or 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 anything. You, you know, the, the posture or the way that he, his back bristles, or you can invoke lots of behavioural signs. Um, but we. I mean, if you want to use the word dominant, that's fine, as long as we don't get into um, a, a mindset of conferring dominance on this dog because of the way that he acts. Because he might be acting in a confident, impressive way, but he can only be dominant if other dogs defer to him. So if another dog comes along and picks a fight with him, then he's not dominant. He's competitive, he may well be competitive, but he can't be dominant unless another dog submits to him. You said it's only by you submission that you can confer dominance on someone. Okay. Because you said something interesting there. You said it could be due to size. So is size a factor for dogs? Generally not in dogs, no. Um, uh, <laughs> dogs seem to be almost oblivious to what size they are. Um, and you'll, you'll, well, you'll regularly see... Uh, and I'm sure your listeners will regularly see small dogs picking on bigger dogs. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Uh, I and, <laughs> and, and they, it's. I mean, dogs are a really weird thing. I mean, as a as a species, they're just odd, because most most of what they do wouldn't happen in a in a kind of a a wild living proper um, uh, undomesticated species. Uh, because the, I mean, you see tiny little terriers taking on on huge dogs, and they're in in real life, that's just not sensible, and yet they still do it. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I um, would love to ask you is, I've heard people say before that with male dogs, the hierarchy, if you can call it that, I know we've already kind of gone through that, um, yeah. is very much dependent on the dog's age. But it isn't with female dogs. Okay. Um, Is that just? Bullshit? I'm not sure about. I'm, I'm not. I've, I've not come across any evidence for that happening in not in female dogs. Um, the the studies of the feral dogs, uh, the studies of, of wild living dogs, um, tend to suggest that um, where dogs do right. 
pet dogs don't need to compete for resources, so there's no need for for pet dogs to have any kind of hierarchy. Not even like toys can, or or anything like that. Um, if there's a limited uh, if there's a limited um, access to them, then possibly yeah. But they don't need to compete for food. Okay. Yeah. And they shouldn't we? Really, it'll it'll. And again, once we've got once we've got they're competing for. Then, if they're in a competition, then they're not in a in a dominance hierarchy. They're in competition. Mm-hmm. Um, in the in the studies of feral dogs, where they are actually competing for resources, there tends to be a very loose hierarchy. Um, a hierarchy does form, um, but as I say, it tends to be very loose, and it tends to be either the dogs that have been in the group longest or the dogs that are oldest. And so you're getting this this family model reasserting itself in the same way that it would with a with a wolf pack. Oh, that's so interesting. The, so the dogs that haven't been there as long tend to defer to the ones that have been there longer. So that so the newcomers tend to defer to the ones that have that have been established on the territory, if you like, and the older ones, which might be a coincidence because they might just be the ones that have been there longer. But the older ones uh, tend to get access to resources over the younger ones. Ah, that's very interesting. Sorry. Yeah, well, yeah, which is which. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Would we'll, we'll, they drop back into the kind of wolf pack form of hierarchy, where it's where the kids take guidance from the older ones? Yeah, no, I would imagine there's always going to be exceptions to that as well. But I think that people tend to act quite similarly to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we do. If we turn up somewhere new, then we're, then we're less confident and we tend to follow what the people that have been there for a while tend to do. Well, and also it's like the whole yeah. respect your elders kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he says as an elder. <laughs> yeah. I'm a young guy, we, so... we deserve respect. We reserve, <laughs> I deserve respect. Please. Be nice to David. He's all along. I've been here a long while. Please. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting because we were, I was talking to um, Jane on one of the previous podcasts, Jane Arden, and she was saying yeah. that she thinks there's great value in introducing young dogs, like I'm talking like puppies, to older dogs and making sure they get plenty of interaction like that as well and that they're not just playing as a bunch of eight-week-old puppies or whatever because they can... Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a huge yeah, amount yeah. of value to be got from that older dog interaction. Yeah, I would say as long as the older dog has some experience with puppies. I mean, I know they, they, they need to start somewhere, um, but we're introducing puppies to um, an older dog that's got no experience of puppies at all uh, might be a little bit uh, counterproductive. Yeah, I think Jane said um, that as well. Just, actually, just be- yeah, just because just because neither knows how to behave. Um, but if you've got an, an older dog that has some experience of puppies, then they're usually uh, very very good at teaching the puppies to inhi- inhibit their behaviour properly. Okay, so, um, so to take and, and, and puppies need to learn it, yeah. So to take this um, logic down the next step, are dogs pack animals? Um, again, a, a pack is a construct that we that we kind of put a label on. Um, uh, pack animals in right in the world there are about uh, two hundred million. Pet dogs. Those are dogs that are looked after by people. Um, they're, they're dogs that that live not just from people but with people. They're, they're what, what you might call owned dogs, dogs that belong to someone. Conversely, there are about a billion 
uh, wild living dogs, dogs that, that get called pie dogs, pariah dogs, uh, feral dogs, uh, coppinger calls them village dogs. Um, so there's five times more of those than there are our pet dogs. Um, and they live off people, but not with people. So they, they, they scrounge and they scavenge and they'll steal. Uh, and they just try and make a living. Um, they tend not to live very long. They tend to live on the verge of starvation most of the time. Um, and they also tend not to pack. They tend to live um, in the same place as other dogs because that's the, where the resources are. If you've got a village dump, then the dogs will live in the vicinity of the village dump. Um, but they don't pack in the same way that wolves do. They don't uh, they don't look after the pups uh, cooperatively uh, and they don't hunt cooperatively. In fact, there's lots of evidence that, that many, many thousands of dogs never ever hunt anything in their entire lives. Um, so from a, um, a cooperative pack point of view, we, we haven't really got any great evidence of dogs uh, packing in the wild. So. To say, to, to put an absolute finger on whether dogs pack or not, if I had to go on one side or the other, I'd say no. I'd say there's very little evidence that dogs form packs. Um, loose congregations, yeah, hanging around where the food resources are. Um, occasionally, you'll get a pair bond forming when a bitch is in season, um, but it doesn't tend to last until, uh, it only lasts as long as the season lasts. So um, it's, it's not like very. It's not like the same six dogs are wandering around with each other. Well, um, you can get that for a short period of time, but because of the fluidity and because of the low life expectancy, um, most of these dogs don't see their fourth birthday. Um, the vast majority of them die before they're one year old. <laughs> it's um, funny you bring that up because I always think of that when people kind of invoke this um, natural argument, right? Like, well, I don't need to brush my teeth. Uh, I don't need to brush dogs' teeth because, you know, they don't do that in the wild. Or I don't in the wild, my dog because yeah, yeah. they don't do that in the wild. It's like, yeah, yeah they yeah. live to four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, well, most of them don't even live that long. You know, the vast majority die just as they're reaching adulthood because um, the the niche that they're living in is full of dogs, and the amount of dogs the niche will support is only so many. So if you say there's a there's a um, uh, a conglomeration of six dogs that kind of hang around together around the same food sources, then they'll eat all the food that's there. So if a bitch has, say, three pups, we've, and they, then they grow to be nine months old, which they're quite unlikely to do, but if they grow to the nine months old, we've now got nine dogs that are trying to survive on enough food for six dogs. And the six that are there already aren't going to allow a nine-month-old pup to outcompete them. So the pups, the pups will be the first to go. You know, if there's a little bit of hardship, then the pups will starve. Um, and so it's all about fitting into into niches. Um, but they're, they're also not competitive. There's only the there's only the bitch interested in her own pups. None of the other dogs will be interested in bringing those pups up. Yeah, you said something um, really interesting there as well about dogs. A lot of dogs never hunting in their lives because we think of dogs as predators. But I think you're right when you you bring up Coppinger. Coppinger always thought of dogs as scavengers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he very strongly thought that. Yeah, and and there's 
if you look at all the studies, there is very little evidence um, that, that dogs hunt at all. This is an interesting one, David, because you're an author of, of um, well, you, you know, you're obviously a fan of Coppinger, but you also wrote yeah, a book yeah. on Predatory Chase, right? Sure. Should, yeah. should we be yeah, calling yeah. it Predatory Chase if these are scavengers? Like, it's, it's, it's a weird one, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. What we've the problem we've got, uh, or not? It's not a problem. It's just a. It's just a, a thing. Um, the dogs that we've got now aren't the same as the domestic dog. Um, the, the, the domestic dog, the village dog, as Coppinger called it, the, the pie dog, the, the pariah dog, um, is a dog of very little activity and um, uh, very little. It doesn't. It doesn't want to do much. It wants to hang around. Um, conserve its energy as much as it can and eat when the food arrives. So there's there's very little energy expended looking for food. It certainly doesn't want to go hunting for food because that would expend a lot of energy. Um, what is it with leopards and lions? It's about one in, uh, in cheetahs, it's about one in six, isn't it? it may, about one in six hunts ends in a kill. Um, and I think that's the, the number's about the same for wolves. So if you're going to do six hunts before you manage a kill, then a domestic dog is going to use an awful lot of energy that it doesn't need to expend if you can hang around until, you know, something turns up. Um, and if they're hanging around in the right place, then it's a regular, fairly dependable something turns up because it's human waste. It's rubbish that we dump. Um, but our pet dogs aren't like that. In about in about the last 200 years, they've gone, gone through a, a kind of a genetic bottleneck because we We've selected dogs for doing particular jobs, uh, and up until oh, 1800, maybe maybe 1850, um, dogs were that. Dogs were workers. You had to be either extremely rich uh, to own a pet dog, or be lucky enough to find one that was dumped because it wasn't very good at working, um, which which wouldn't in any case be very good at chasing things because. By nature, working dogs tend to chase things. Um, however, in the late Victorian and, and into the um, early 20th century, um, dog breeding took off uh, with a huge boom, uh, and pet ownership started to take off as well. Um, uh, but we bred these pets from dogs that used to be workers. And if you think about whatever kind of dog you've got, it used to be, you know, anybody's got, it used to be a worker of some kind. All dogs have been workers of some kind in their, in their lives. I mean, I've got a, a Lars Abso, uh, and, and I, I need more sympathy than that. I could have had an awe there, really. <laughs> I imagine um, you to have a, a big German shepherd. Yeah, you would, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he thinks inside, inside he thinks he's a big German shepherd. <laughs> nobody's told him nobody's told him he's a Lars Abso. Um, but they're originally guard dogs uh, and and uh, trying to stop him barking when somebody comes to the door is almost impossible. Well, it is impossible. Um, I mean, I consider myself a reasonably competent dog trainer and I have trained him. He runs and sits on his bed. When he hears a knock at the door, he runs and sits on his bed but he just can't resist. His, his, his generations of ancestors are telling him, you've got to bark at least once. And so I always get this, woof. And then he runs to his bed and goes, oh, I shouldn't have done that, but it's all right, try, I'm on my bed now. It's okay. <laughs> you can see his poor little brain. I mean, he's, he's a dog of very little brain anyway, but he's, um, his poor little brain just, just can't get round this. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I can't deny my instinct. So do you think that um, we've bred predatory instincts 
into the pet oh, dog. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, not in Ted's case. He's, he's got all the he's got all the predation of a of an armchair. Um, <laughs> but but in the case of many breeds, I mean, there's a lot of the, a lot of the uh, sheep dogs, for instance, and the and the coursing dogs, the grounds, the whippets. You know, uh, all of these have have, have had predatory chase behaviour um, uh, bred into them for generations and generations because that's that's what we want them to do. We want them to chase things. And that's all part of the predatory continuum. This relates to something I heard you say when I first saw you speak, which was uh, in Devon before I knew you or anything. Well, I went to your talk yeah. on predatory chase, and it has always yeah. stuck with me. And I, I've certainly told people this before. Um, what you were saying about dogs getting dopamine kicks, essentially, from the activities yeah. that they're bred for. So, like yeah. you said there about Ted, you know, wanting to say hello to people and all that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. And then you make the comparison to livestock guardian dogs that sit in the field high all day yeah. because of their yeah, right. just laid there, yeah. which has always yeah. tickled me and always stayed with me. Yeah, blissed out, relaxing in the field, watching sheep go by. That's yeah, the life. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> however you can get your dopamine hit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're all looking for in life, our little dopamine hit. Yeah, so that relates to uh, all of the predatory stuff, right? So if we bred the dogs to enjoy predatory chase, yeah, absolutely. Then we're going to have a, a, a problem in, in stopping that. Well, that's, that's why that's one of the reasons why people think dogs are dominant because dogs are trying to get this this breed specific behaviour into their lives, and it causes conflict with people and. And because we've bred them to such an extent to, to want to do this behaviour, um, or to, it's, the difference between a want and a need is really an edge. It's, it's, um, it's a bit difficult to, to tease the two apart. Um, but I would, I would go as far as to say that in some circumstances we certainly need an outlet for it. Um, and it's in those circumstances where they get difficult to control and people say, well, he won't stop doing it when I tell him. He's just being dominant. And, it, and it's not about dominance, it's about us understanding what what we've bred into these dogs. Yeah, um, sure. And, and find, finding them a way to, to do it in an, in an appropriate manner as opposed to one that comes into conflict with us. This really resonates with me. Recently I had a case of a, a collie that um, kept chasing cats or uh, has a really pulls and tries to chase these cats and the lady yeah. was very much of that viewpoint that, you know, this dog is you know he's being dominant he's being yeah you know all of these labels he's really taking them yeah, sure. and it's like yeah. well you know yeah, yeah. i had to explain that you know this is a dog that has been bred to to chase yeah. things essentially uh especially things that yeah. move so it, it's not that he's taken the mick it's that you know he's got this, this is what he's bred for the, the trouble is people get confused with dogs like collies because they see them working extremely well and they see them doing agility and they see them searching for things and they think my goodness they're really clever it's a really clever dog i'll get a collie because they're a really clever breed and then they then translate clever as being able to do what i tell it when i tell it as opposed to being able to do things that make the dog happy yeah and we... it's when it's when the dog doesn't do what it's told that they say well 
he's clever enough to do, you know, he's clever enough to do all these things. Why is he not clever enough to do what I tell him when I tell him? <laughs> yeah, we were talking about this the other day. We were talking about how people view this term um, easy to train, right? Because, like, yeah, yeah. you know, we spoke about, say, something like a Belgian Shepherd, right? It's easy to train mm. in the sense that it picks up, it's very intelligent, it's going to pick up the things that you're training yeah. in, but that doesn't equate yeah. to easy to live with. No, absolutely not. Which no. is how a lot of people view this when they think of dogs that are sure. easy to train. There's a huge difference between between training and living with um, that, that a lot of members of the public don't seem to understand. Um, and as you say, they'll pick a dog that's easy to train, but that doesn't equate to being easy to live with. Uh, and it probably equates to likes a lot of stimulation, yeah, which is far from easy to live with. Well, you've wrote a lot about this, haven't you? Um, trying to remember the name, but, uh, regarding the the secrets of living with dogs and a lot of these kind of management protocols and good things to teach your dog to make them more yeah, sure. live uh, yeah, make it guide, easier to live with them. Yeah, guide and control is is the booklet that I try and. Um, uh, get people to understand dogs' needs and and kind of preempt them so that we're living in harmony rather than and it's well, it's it's back down to the family model. It's back down to um, dogs will do what they think is the right thing to get them the result that they want. So if you can persuade the dog to do something that you like in order to get the dog what it wants, then it's perfect harmony. It's it's same as the the wolf does with with his cubs uh, with the pups. He teaches them the ways of the wolf. So we're trying to teach the dogs the ways of living in our family, just in the same way that, that, the, that the wolf, that the alpha, if you want to call it, or dad, as I prefer to call him, teaches his, his pups. Yeah, I always think of dogs as being extreme cat- uh, capitalists as animals, right? They just, they're just yeah, looking sure. for ways to get value out of, out of situations. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really couldn't be any other way. It couldn't be. Well, that's animals, yeah. right? It's not even just dogs. It's animals. No, no. Because that's everybody. how you survive. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it too. Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. And I, I love what you... Um, I love the way that you approach dog training because I think that it's very pet owner friendly, right? Like, I, I think sometimes in the dog training community, we get so, like, obsessed with the theory in a way that we always want to relay things with technical yeah, terms and, and the yeah. way that uh, you talk, you really make it easy to understand for someone that is uh, a dog owner. So I'm sure to, yeah. you talk, to, to see that you've wrote a book about dominance to me makes a lot of sense because I think that that's something that pet owners are struggling with. And I couldn't think of someone better to relay it to them than, than you. That's great. I hope I've made it quite light. There's there's the odd joke in it, and there's the, there's lots of references to to real life, so that so that people can hopefully get it um, and understand it. And there's also some examples of, of dogs that I've dealt with in the past that were labelled dominant by their owners, and when we tease it apart and and deconstruct it and put it back together again, it, it turns out it's got nothing to do with dominance, but it's got a lot to do with what the dog was needing. So give um, us an example of that, David. Oh gosh, um, what? Ah, oh, Ted. I'll tell you. Yeah, my dog, Ted. Um, <laughs> tell us about Ted. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you about Ted. Ted was. Um, I I worked with some rescues, um, uh, hoping to 
um, make some dogs rehomeable that, that possibly have bitten people because even if dogs have bitten people then we don't have to give up on them we don't, we don't just say you know we'll write that dog off um, and so the rescue usually rings me up and says can you can you come and see we've got maybe three four dogs in that, that are, uh, are causing us some problems and we can have a sit down have a talk about them have a look at them and, and see if we can work out some programs as to what we're going to do um, and I'd been along and seen I'd seen about three dogs this day and we'd, we'd worked out some some ways of, of um, kind of making them more rehomeable and then then they showed me into this compound and there was this little scruffy Lars Abso sitting at the far end of it and he he kind of waddled over and he said this is his name wasn't Ted then but whatever um, I said well, what's he here for why are, you, why are you showing me him and they said oh he's, he's bitten his owner I said bitten his owner seriously <laughs> yeah he's, he was he was one year old um, and the owner had actually uh, rung the rescue and said I, I can't take any more um, he's bitten me so badly and, and they said when when she brought him in her hands were a complete mess he'd, he'd bitten great chunks out of her hands um, and so and it, and it had now reached the stage where she could hardly look at him without him launching himself at her so I, I kind of got down with this little dog and um, and I kind of prodded and poked him and, and did various things that, uh, that I do to uh, kind of sort of provoke him uh, just to see with the level of tolerance that he has before before he would start to give any signals off that he might be uncomfortable or might bite me and I, I couldn't do anything there, was, there wasn't anything that I did that, that made him that made him uncomfortable or want to bite me and so I thought well, this is just odd so we, we went back in and we, we rang the owner and we said when is it that he bites you because he clearly does I mean nobody's disbelieving you and she said oh, it's when I it's when I tell him off and I said, right, okay. How do you tell him off? Well, I, I, I've seen it on TV. I, I, I hold him down, and then I roll him over onto his back, and I hold him there, and uh, and I hold him down, and then then he attacks me, then he bites me. I said, when is it that you need to tell him off? Well, it, it just started when he wouldn't come back to me, but then now he does it. Uh, now I do it every time he growls at me. But he started growling at me all the time. So every time he growls at me, I have to hold him down and roll him over. And I went back into the... I said, okay, thanks, yeah, cool, that's all right. So I went back into the room, and as I walked towards him, kind of wagged my finger at him and said, no, I've been a naughty dog. Slightly unfairly, because he hadn't. But he, he, he stood there, squared himself up, and showed the finest set of gleaming white gnashes growling at me that you could imagine. And so I, I kind of laughed and bent down and went, come here, you daft article. And he just he just stopped completely, toddled over to me and snuggled in. And so it was the way that Ted had been treated by rolling him over and pinning him down that caused him to be aggressive. And it had started fairly benignly with him not coming back. But obviously, eventually, when he had come back, he'd been rolled over. So now he thought, if he went towards his owner, then the chances were he was going to get rolled over and pinned down, which obviously he didn't like, and he fought back. Um, and I had a bit of a problem then, because he clearly got to the stage where he didn't trust his owner at all. And we, we could have tried a program of, of getting him back with her, but she didn't want him anymore. She, she'd reached the end of her tether and, and decided this was a dominant dog that she couldn't control. Um, 
And she said he was dominant. There was there was no two ways about it in her mind. This was a dominant dog. It's so, um, it's so sad what this uh, belief of, of, or this reliance yeah. upon dominance thinking has done to dogs like Ted, where just well, that as, misunderstanding, as said, just that misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah. As she said, she'd seen it on the TV. You know, it was something that she'd say, so it must be right. Uh, and that was the way to deal with it. So, um, and so I then had a problem of how I was going to rehome this dog that if you shouted at him or bent down to try and pick him up, he would bite you. And I, I couldn't think of anybody who, A, wouldn't tell him off, uh, because, because pet owners do. Um, and you don't blame them for that. It's how most people live with their dogs. Occasionally they get told off. And if you're going to want to adopt a tiny, cuddly, fluffy little dog, then you're going to want to pick it up as well. Um, and so to cut a long story short, I ended up with him. <laughs> yeah, not the German Shepherd we associate you with. No, 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 <laughs> sadly not. But inside, inside there's a German Shepherd trying to get out. It's funny because uh, when I was talking to Robert on the podcast that was released yesterday, well, it was yesterday as we're recording this, but not yesterday to people listening to yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he Obviously, he was in the police as well, and now he's ended up with a cockapoo. So there's, there's some yeah, kind of trend here. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's well, it's aggressive dogs. I end, I've ended up with with an allegedly aggressive dog. That's I think that's the difference. Well, Robert yeah. ended up it with was, a cockapoo that was resource guarding. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, where yeah. can people find out more about you, David? Oh, dog secrets. www.dog-secrets.co.uk, which I hasten to add is an ironically named website because I don't actually believe there are any. Uh, Secrets. It's just that stuff that nobody's been stuff that people haven't told you yet. That's all. And what um, about so all of these, on the website? All of these and books. On, you've on yeah, all of the books. Uh, they're all on on Amazon or any good kind of online book retailer, or or you can get them through the website at Dog Secrets as well. All right, brilliant. Great talking to you, David. It's been nice to talk to you again. We'll have to make it uh, less than another two years, I reckon. <laughs> well, let me know when your next book's coming out. I'll do my best. All right, take care. <laughs> See you, David. Bye for now. What's up guys? I hope that gave you a little bit more insight into the whole dominant dog situation. I know that for a long time, even after I became a positive trainer, this idea of dominant dogs was still really confusing for me. Uh, but I think David breaks it down well. Don't forget to pick up his book, which I'm going to link to in the show notes. So to find the show notes, search for nickbenger.com slash David hyphen Ryan. His book will be listed there as well as uh, anything else that we've discussed in the podcast. Don't forget also to join us over on Facebook. So all you have to do there is search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. Put in a uh, request to join and we can accept you and you can come and discuss the podcast with us and tell us what you think. Tell us how we can improve it. Um, and yeah, just have a good discussion about it. Also, this podcast has been sponsored by Button Up Box. So Button Up Box is a home-cooked meal company. 
they make the food, they portion it perfectly for your dog, and they deliver it to your door. You don't have to keep remembering to order dog food. They can do it as a monthly subscription service. They're one of the few companies that has a five-star rating on All About Dog Food. Everything I've heard about them has just been brilliant. Even when I put up the post in the group, everyone was saying really nice things about Butternut Box. So I think that it's going to be hugely positive, and I think there's something that's definitely worth trying out. Even if you're a little bit skeptical, just get that first box and see what you think, because the great thing is they've offered a huge discount on your first box for listeners of the podcast. So to get your 75% off your first box, which is just crazy... Search for buttonupbox.com slash nickbenger. And if you enjoyed your box or you want to just uh, talk about it a little bit more, talk about dog foods even, even if you don't want to talk about butternut box, but let's have a bit of a discussion about it, then head over to the Facebook group and uh, we can talk about it more there. But I'm sure you will love it. Anyway, I appreciate you guys listening. See ya.